Bally's plans to offer city residents stakes in the Chicago casino. And I'll talk with Crane's contributor Steve Hendershot about how the city council can lead the response to Chicago's most urgent challenges. Well, I think the view of this summer as a potentially violent one, especially with what we already saw in the loop, I feel like there was a unanimous consensus that this is a dangerous moment because of the amount of institutional turnover. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, May 10th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a Wintrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local Wintrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. One City, 50 Wards is a joint series from Crane's Chicago Business and the University of Chicago Center for Effective Government, and it explores the connections between how Chicago's city government is designed, how it functions, and how it performs. Here to talk about the latest installation of the series, Crane's contributor, Steve Hendershot. Steve, welcome back. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. So in your recent piece, you wrote about how the city council can lead the response to some of Chicago's most urgent social challenges. That sounds like a very big job for any one body, much less, you know, the city council that's already tackling a lot of stuff. Tell me about this piece. I mean, it's an interesting one in this moment as we transition between mayoral administrations, because a lot of this policy traditionally comes out of city hall. So you think about what should the city council be doing other than evaluating a mayor's proposal and following their lead. Well, this moment when you change administrations is kind of like, well, that means maybe you adopt a whole completely different set of strategies. And so you get to this thing where regardless of the merit of one strategy versus another, something the council maybe should do is think about continuity and the value of maintaining an approach or not. But, you know, some of the stuff that takes time to cook needs time to cook. Yeah, that's right. So one person you spoke with, uh, the chair of the city council's committee on public safety, kind of felt like this summer, this this moment of turnover, this moment of change was was more of a liability. But elsewhere in the piece, it seemed like, no, this is maybe an opportunity to to rethink some stuff. When you talk to people in reporting this, where where did most people fall? Well, I think the view of this summer as a potentially violent one, especially with what we already saw in the loop, I feel like there was a unanimous consensus that this is a dangerous moment because of the amount of institutional turnover. That's not to say that we're not about to do some really interesting things in terms of structure and approach and governance, but it's not an ideal moment to be turning over the superintendent and the mayor and the administration, all of that stuff. So it can be both and, I guess, like interesting and exciting, long-term, dangerous, short-term. Yeah, both things can be true, I suppose. Um, You also spoke with a a senior fellow and the director of the Community Economic Development Hub at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. What was the the takeaway from that conversation? That was a really interesting one. And, And what I was mentioning a minute ago about the value of continuity, I spoke to him about 
Mayor Lightfoot's Invest Southwest initiative. So basically what you have there is they identified 10 of the city's 77 neighborhoods, or maybe it's 10 of the wards uh, and greenlit really ambitious, big community development projects in those communities. There was some question in the campaign. I think at one point, uh, both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis said they wouldn't continue with Invest Southwest. And there are certainly other valid ways to pursue uh, revitalizing disinvested communities, right? But the question is, having having done this, what does this mean? How hard is it to do? So that, those are the questions that I put to uh, to Brett from the Urban Institute. And we've got a complete Q&A running, I think, this next Monday as well. It was a great conversation. But the upshot is it takes anywhere between half a billion to a billion dollars to revitalize any individual community in the city. Not a billion dollars in one year, but that's sort of long-term. That has been what it costs to do that. And so he said, invest Southwest sort of makes sense as a year one thing, but this doesn't work as a drop in the bucket. Like we did that one time, spent a bunch of money and now moved on and took a completely different approach to this. So that that's where that sort of idea of, well, it does merit consideration. Like, is this the right approach? But if it's the right approach, or at least it's an approach that we're 15% of the way down that road, you know, think about seeing it through. You also included uh, in your reporting, you talked about Chicago's Community Commission for Public Safety and Accountability, this new thing, this new body that's kind of sprung up. Where did people generally land on that, thinking of you know what the next few years are going to look like? So that body is one of several that really takes Chicago from a black box in terms of community accountability and transparency to a national leader in terms of the amount of civilian insight and oversight of police. But because it's a national leader, I mean, we it's like most of the biggest cities in the country now have some form of community oversight. Chicago all of a sudden has like four or five different bodies that theoretically are going to coordinate and work together to deliver this uh, higher degree of cooperation. And so I think the, it's like, you know, the oversight part sounds great. The challenge is can these pieces lock together to deliver this in a coherent way that's not just competing? There's a there's a lot of moving parts there. I mean, that's the inherent challenge with all of this, right, is that there's so many moving pieces. There's so many factors to consider. It's not very straightforward. It's really complex. There's a lot to it, which also brings me to the piece you wrote before this was about why the city council structure gives rise to corruption. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, you can even tie this to so one of the things that hopefully sets us up to perhaps have less corruption in the future is this really empowered Office of the Inspector General and the uh, the Inspector General Deborah Witzberg was a, a star of that piece. But contrast that to the budget office that I featured in the story before that, which was like, you know, the city council created that thing, modeled on some national peers, but it's really underfunded and understaffed and sort of a, a thing in name only. Whereas the Office of the Inspector General is this robust, well-staffed, group that I, I still feel like, you know, there's room to take their reports, investigations, recommendations, findings, and make sure that that gets due consideration in terms of becoming policy and whatnot. But it's there. That's a, a, a real group with power. So that bodes well for the corruption conversation. But back to uh, what you're saying about policing, I think that's part of where you land on these civilian oversight agencies. There's a way to do this wrong that either results in cacophony or competition 
you know, and maybe they're just sort of up here buzzing around and no actual reform has to happen because the, you know, there's so much noise that none of it is signal and it can get ignored by the people who want to ignore it. So for the, for that commission, what, what are the markers of success that, that we should be looking for? I think that the policing future, and this is, so it's not just that uh, civilian commission. It's also the new elected police district officers. It's also the uh, deputy inspector general for public safety. What you want to have come out of this is not only an ethical police department that sort of is operating in a way that doesn't seem like martial law or something like that, but there's two sides of this, right? We, we have like high crime in Chicago that we're trying to get a hold of. We also have a really fractious, distrustful relationship in many communities between people and the police. And the hope with all of these bodies together is that you solve both of that, that by strengthening the connection between community and police, you build a bond of trust, but it's not just connection. Theoretically, that relationship is also going to lead to practice and policy change that is positive and part of what engenders the trust. And, and what would you say now that we've gone through this series, the, the One City, 50 Wards, what are the big takeaways that, that you hope people pull from the full project? The first three stories, so the first one on the structure, I was just really surprised whether it was the uh, the city charter, the number of aldermen per citizen in Chicago it, it is far lower than any of the other big cities. We don't have a city charter. That's completely anomalous and unique amongst big cities. And so as I got to the next two and three stories, it was kind of like, Chicago's got to stop being an outlier. You know, This narrative is not going to get to rest on this base of no one else is like us. I just kept finding those things. We really are anomalous in lots of ways. And so you combine that with a legacy of not great government. So as I had written about corruption and interviewed the inspector general, right after that, uh, her office published a recommendation relating to something I'd mentioned in the first story, which is that we actually have in the city code, this mandatory position, kind of an operational administrative officer that would work in city hall. And so the inspector general said, yeah, we should fill that job. And in fact, you can point to really poor coordination between city departments as evidence that we're feeling the the lack thereof. So I interviewed Cheryl Scully, the, uh, the former city manager. She was, I think, deputy in Phoenix and then the longtime city manager in San Antonio to sort of, you know, size up the job opportunity. You know, what, what would be exciting about not being a full-on city manager, but to sort of lend your administrative operational uh, insights to a city like Chicago and what would terrify you or give you pause before you came and took the job. So that happened. I'm not saying at all that we need a city manager, but just, you know, some of the Twitter chatter was just kind of like, you know, nah, we, we've got this. And just like from a meta perspective, that just cannot be the way we're thinking about the city council or any other aspect of governance, right? Like we, we just have a long track record of knowing that we don't got this. <laughs> right. So I feel, I feel like all of these things are worthy of consideration. So I, I think that's what was fun about this series. It was not prescriptive, but I think it did raise a lot of the ways that we are different from everybody else. And the whole exercise is worth consideration. Yeah, definitely. So as the new uh, mayoral administration takes the wheel, what will be most compelling for you to watch in the months ahead? I mean, it's interesting right now, the uh, the conversation with the city council, again, structurally, not thinking about you know this 
player in Chicago politics got a committee chairmanship or didn't, so et cetera. But like there was this move toward council independence and it didn't exactly happen in the organized way that, you know, you might have preferred to flow up out of this uh, series, but it was out there. And I think, you know, so I, I'm interested to see, I mean, I, I think what we have seen in the last couple of days is that we are still in a situation where the mayor exerts a lot of control over city council. And I think, you know, again, this is nothing to do with Mayor Johnson's agenda or things like that. But I, I feel like one takeaway is that an independent council would perhaps be helpful because Chicago is such a strong mayor city, but it's hard to get away from those habits and practices. Yeah, indeed. Well, time will tell and see how it all shakes out. Thanks so much, Steve. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a fight over Japan illustrates a bigger battle for United Airlines. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard about here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and using code DAILYGIST, all one word, at checkout to redeem this offer. So be sure to visit chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and enter code DAILYGIST to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Bally's plans to offer stakes in its planned Chicago casino to city residents. Bally's said in a press release, quote, the ownership interest would be offered to residents of the city of Chicago that satisfy the qualification requirements in the host community agreement between Bally's Chicago and the city of Chicago. The Rhode Island-based gambling giant had previously disclosed on its website plans to allow what it described as minority investors to, quote, own 25 percent of the project, which is slated to be developed on the 30-acre riverfront site now home to the Chicago Tribune's Freedom Center printing plant. Bally's framed that as a centerpiece of its community benefit commitment to the city. Bally's didn't disclose the eligibility criteria for investors, but the company's website said investors in the 25% stake will include philanthropists, business owners, sports stars, celebrities, and everyday Chicagoans from black and Latino communities, as well as other ethnic and gender representations. The company said it has confidentially submitted a draft registration statement with the SEC related to the ownership interest offering. Bally said that the IPO of the ownership interest is expected to occur after the SEC completes its review process, subject to market and other conditions. Separately, Bally's needs approval from the Illinois Gaming Board for the temporary casino at Medina Temple, but in the organization's most recent earnings release, the president of Bally's said the plan for the temporary casino is on track and on budget to open later this summer, and said that the permanent facility is also slightly ahead of schedule and budget for opening in the summer of 2026. Media entrepreneur Byron Allen has sued McDonald's again. This time, he alleges that the Chicago-based burger chain is not on track to meet a 2021 commitment to spend more of its advertising budget with black-owned media companies. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that McDonald's announced plans in May of 2021 to increase its spending with black-owned media and production properties to 5%, up from 2%. 
The lawsuit says that Allen's companies, which include properties like the Weather Channel and Justice Central, represent 90% of the black-owned advertising market in the U.S. As such, McDonald's would need to spend more than $50 million a year advertising with Allen's properties to meet its goal, according to the lawsuit. However, McDonald's allegedly proposed spending only, quote, a tiny fraction of its advertising budget with Allen's companies, according to the suit. Marathi noted that the lawsuit also alleges that McDonald's plan was a, quote, self-serving ploy to cast itself as racially sensitive and sympathetic while misleading the public. The lawsuit said, quote, McDonald's had no intent to fulfill its commitment. Its plan was and is a fraud. In a statement, McDonald's said that it will defend itself against the lawsuit and not be coerced by such tactics. The company said, quote, while McDonald's continues to invest in diverse initiatives to create real change in communities, Byron Allen files baseless lawsuits as part of a public smear campaign against our company to try to line his pockets. McDonald's statement went on to say, quote, this latest action is straight from his standard litigation playbook, cherry picking allegations to create a false and misleading narrative that is inconsistent with the facts and calculated to distract from the markedly low ratings and reach of his media properties. Marathi noted in reporting that McDonald's advertising spend commitment was part of a broader push to improve diversity and inclusion that the fast food chain made in recent years. It's also promised to diversify supplier and franchisee ranks and tied some executive compensation to meeting those diversity goals. The company also said that in the past two years, it's invested millions of dollars with black-owned media companies as part of its pledge. Marathi noted that the lawsuit was filed May 4th in California State Court in Los Angeles. It asked the court to require that McDonald's comply with its pledge of spending at least 5% of its advertising budget on black-owned media annually. It also demands an estimated $100 million in compensation for McDonald's' alleged fraudulent and false promises. Marathi further noted that Allen has been sparring with McDonald's for years and has another discrimination lawsuit against the company pending. Last month, he took out a full-page ad in the Chicago Tribune soliciting support from activist investor Carl Icahn in his fight against what the ad said was, quote, blatant racism at McDonald's. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that Baxter International said it plans to sell its biopharma solutions business to a duo of private equity firms for $4.25 billion in cash. Advent International, a Boston-based private equity investor, and Warburg Pincus, a New York-based growth investor, have a deal to buy the Baxter unit according to a statement. The business provides manufacturing services for the pharmaceutical and biotech industries and is expected to generate $600 million in revenue this year. Davis noted in reporting that under the new owners, the Biopharma Solutions business would operate as a standalone company with about 1,700 workers in Germany as well as in Bloomington, Indiana. The transaction, subject to regulatory approval, is expected to close in the second half of this year, according to the statement. After tax, the deal proceeds to Baxter are estimated to be about $3.4 billion. Reuters reported Sunday that Baxter was in advanced discussions with the two companies to sell the Biopharma Solutions business. Deerfield-based Baxter's stock was slightly up upon the news.
Davis noted that Baxter, the Chicago area's 13th largest publicly traded company, according to Crane's research, first announced in January that it was pursuing what it described as strategic alternatives that included a sale or separation for its biopharma solutions business. The announcement came at the same time that Baxter disclosed a massive restructuring that also included reorganizing the company under three distinct units and spinning off its renal care business. At the time, Baxter said the biopharma segment had what it described as opportunities for growth, but that its business model and client focus didn't fully align with the rest of Baxter's portfolio. Davis reported that Baxter said it intends to use proceeds from the deal to pay down debt. As of December 31st, Baxter had more than $16.6 billion in debt, according to its most recent annual filing. Davis further noted that the company's ambitious restructuring plan came after a troublesome 2022, in which it disclosed taking a $3.1 billion impairment charge on its $10.5 billion purchase of Hillrom in 2021. According to the company, Baxter was facing supply chain constraints, rising interest rates, and other inflationary pressures. While those issues have started to recede this year, they haven't completely gone away, according to company executives. Delta Airlines and Chicago-based United Airlines are battling over flying to Tokyo. Crane's John Pletz reported that Delta has proposed that the U.S. Department of Transportation give airlines some flexibility to choose what cities they fly from to Tokyo's Haneda Airport. But United countered by saying Delta should use the routes it was awarded in 2019 or lose them. Pletz noted that the dispute is a sign of how aggressively United CEO Scott Kirby is going after his rival CEO Ed Bastian and Delta, which traditionally have been the most profitable and highly rewarded legacy carrier by investors. Pletz noted that international flying traditionally has been both prestigious and profitable for the major carriers like Delta and United, and Japan is the second largest travel market in Asia behind China, with gross bookings before the pandemic estimated at $100 billion, according to Focusrite, a travel industry consultancy headquartered in Sherman, Connecticut. Pletz also noted that routes between Japan and the U.S. are negotiated between the governments, not chosen at will by the carriers. Delta won rights to five new routes to Haneda in 2019, and United won four, including Chicago. But Delta says flying simply looks different today, coming out of the pandemic, than when it did when the takeoff and landing slots were awarded at Haneda, the airport closest to downtown Tokyo. United says it's flying all five routes it has to Haneda, while Delta is serving only five of the seven cities it's allowed. A United spokesperson told reporters, quote, Despite intense challenges from the pandemic, travel between the U.S. and Japan is rebounding. He went on to say, quote, Demand for airline tickets to Japan is 73 percent recovered. That's above average. We're flying more to Haneda than we did before the pandemic. Pletz noted that under Delta's three-year plan, carriers would get flexibility to choose the cities served with two of their slot pairs or routes. The United spokesperson said Delta should be forced to give up routes it previously won but doesn't use and let other carriers compete for them, saying of the 2019 competition, quote, we wanted to serve Haneda from Houston and Guam, adding that United stands ready to serve the airport from those two markets.
United also accused Delta of putting profits ahead of public interest. Delta said in a statement, quote, Delta stands by our well-reasoned petition to the department, and we look forward to a constructive dialogue to ensure Haneda access is consistent with Open Skies policy and benefits the U.S. traveling public. In its own filing with the Department of Transportation, American Airlines, United's primary rival at O'Hare, supported Delta's request. But Pletz noted that the feud underscores the importance of the Asian market to airlines like United, Delta, and American, all of whom have individual strongholds. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Steve Hendershot. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.